0: And gentlemen to the Popes Against the Modern Errors on the member supported Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode I am delighted to be joined once again by His Lordship, Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord, and thank you for joining us again.
1: Hello, Matthew.
0: In this show, we will be discussing Mortalium Animus of Pope Pius XI. My Lord, this encyclical was written 28 years into a century that was to be defined by warfare. Europe has already been forever changed by World War I. All the vice of the Roaring Twenties has been unleashed, and little does Europe know it, but just around the corner, the Great Depression will hit, followed by the Spanish Civil War, and then World War II. The secular dream is not working, that people are still seeking unity. What else would you like to say about the environment in which this encyclical was written and about Pius XI himself?
1: Well, uh, yes, it was written at a time when uh, people were still reeling from the First World War, which was such a shock to the entire world. Uh, the, people don't realize it because it's overshadowed by the Second World War. But the First World War was, was a, a, just a, a stunning event. Uh, for the entire world, and there was um, a a thrust after World War One to put humanity together on the basis of naturalism. Uh, Woodrow Wilson said that at Versailles or at the P- Paris Peace Conference that where Christianity has failed, now humanism must put humanity together. Uh, that's a paraphrase, but. Uh, that's uh, that was his mind that that Christianity has failed in keeping people together and keeping people at peace. Now we, the humanists, must uh, accomplish this. Uh, that, that's the, the the idea. But also there was a, a history of ecumenism, what we call ecumenism, that was very strong in the Protestant churches. The Protestant churches have always tried to put themselves together (laughs) ever since day one. They have always been appalled by their divisions and have made every attempt to pull themselves together. And so the ecumenical movement goes way, way back with the Protestants. It goes back hundreds of years. And they never succeeded. They, they, They made all sorts of attempts at succeeding, but they never succeeded in doing it. It started to infect Catholics with the modernist movement, already we saw in the 1860s the uh, association in England for the oh uh, Union of, of Christianity or something like that, where that was the branch theory, where these Anglo-Catholics and high church types petitioned Rome to recognize them as having valid orders, first of all, and also as uh, seeing three branches of the Church of Christ or the Christian Church, and one was the Anglican, the other was the Orthodox, and the other was the Roman. And that although they differ in doctrine and differ in rites, nonetheless they had many things in common and therefore these three branches constituted the the true Church of Christ. And Rome condemned that in no uncertain terms uh, and said uh, it completely thwarts and overthrows the very nature of the catholic church to to make such an assertion and invited the the anglican divines to come back to the catholic church if you're seeking unity you know just convert to catholicism now don't forget this was the time of newman and Wiseman and other uh, prominent people in england who had made conversions to catholicism so you know it was in that context uh Look, just make your move. Uh, these were the Puseyites, uh, the uh, you know who who loved everything Catholic except the Catholic Church, and, and and in certain cases made their liturgical observances more Catholic than the Catholic Church. That that was you know a step in that direction. But what really set this off, I think, were the what they call the Maline conferences of. Cardinal Mercier. Cardinal Mercier was a person of modernist tendency, to say the least. And he conducted these uh, Malin conferences. I think he also went to the Lambeth conferences in England. Uh, And it's exactly what Pope Pius XI describes in the encyclical, these meetings where Catholic dogma is put on the table and is meant to be compromised and and in some way watered down in order to fit the Protestants, all in the view of some sort of amalgamation. And again, he comes out with this encyclical, which utterly and totally condemns the whole movement uh, right down to the root. And this encyclical is just as important as Pashendi, because Pashendi of St. Pius X condemning modernism uh, about 20 years earlier alluded to the fact of this idea that all religions uh, are, are essentially the same in the modernist religion uh, in the modernist heresy uh, and that therefore they, they can amalgamate he, he, you know, he, he did develop that point but here Pope Pius XI is condemning the whole thing that, and, and, and is confining himself merely to that very point of modernism it's very, very important because the soul of Vatican II is ecumenism. Everything that Vatican II said and did was for the sake of ecumenism, it was for the sake of breaking down Catholic dogma in order to put all religions together. And this in view of, of a greater goal, and that is the, uh, the humanity religion, which we're seeing a lot of now with Bergoglio, that humanity should come together on on naturalistic principles and socialistic principles and a new world, a new humanity, as he talked about in the in the youth day, in the youth whatever in Poland. That there is a new humanity that is that is the civilization of love. That's what John Paul II called it. It's Gaudium and Spez. That is, the church is behind this movement to put humanity together on purely naturalistic principles in which each person's religion has a value and that no one should condemn anyone else for his religious ideas. That is the spirit of the age and that's what Vatican II was called to canonize. And it, all of its, everything it did was in view of ecumenism. So this really is a, is a pivotal document. And and condemns it uh, probably even more strongly than Saint Pius X did. There are some very strong words in this encyclical. So that, there's some background to it.
0: Okay, so if we have a look at paragraph one first, my lord, um, you can see he's uh, <laughs> he says the world does not yet fully enjoy the fruits of peace. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On the contrary, dissensions held in the end of Erisland still issue in rebellions and conflict. It's almost British in its understatement.
1: <laughs> yes, well, already Benedict the Fifteenth criticized the Treaty of Ber- Versailles as really inviting another war. Uh, we know that the, the French were very, very insistent on the very heavy reparations that Germany had to make, Uh and even Wilson and Lloyd George told the French, "Look, you're going to drive them into another war if you do this." And uh, but Clemenceau was, uh, you know, had a was deaf to that, and you know, then you know the rest of the story. And you know, one of the main reasons why Hitler came to power was that people resented deeply the Versailles Treaty that was forced upon them. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get into all of the, those things, but the, uh, they had a very, very deep resentment of what happened to Germany after World War I when, in fact, the armistice was signed when Germany was still in control of about perhaps one quarter of French territory and that not a single French soldier had ever, or allied soldier, for that matter, had crossed into German territory. And uh, so you know they they were in a sense uh, in in a better position than the allies, and uh, yet they they it was as if they had thrown down their arms. So they were very very deeply upset by that. And he's he's referring to this that the peace that was supposed to break forth uh, from Versailles and and uh, you know a, a, war, a war excuse me a war to end all wars and. All of that really fell flat on its face uh, after World War I and Versailles. Already there were, there were movements and problems among the nations of Europe, which uh, you know, were, were pointing to yet another war. So he's putting a pin in the balloon of these one-worlders, who were very active, by the way, at Versailles, know uh, all of this uh, putting you know, one world together. Putting a pin in their balloon uh, by saying uh, this uh, you fail to do this because a, as he said and it was his motto the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ you're not going to achieve a peace in the world unless you establish the reign of Christ that was his whole pontificate we might say so he was a man uh, he had he was known for a very strong temper I don't know if you know that. But uh, he, yes, he would yell at people, bang his fist on the table. Uh, He would uh, get worked up. He was known for a very strong temper. He called a spade a spade. I don't know if that's a British term, but he he was very clear about everything he thought. And uh, so much so that they had to massage his statements and speeches, speeches for the Osservatorio Romano because they were so strong, <laughs> yes. You know, he would say something in, in a consistory and then it came out different in the Osservatorio Romano uh, so, uh, for fear of offending the Italian government or something like that. So that's Pius XI. And he saw this rising of what is essentially modernism uh, again, and he stepped on it with this encyclical, and, and um, we're so glad that he did.
0: There's no shrinking violet, then. Well, he finishes, no. the... <laughs> 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 he finishes the first paragraph with um, uh, with, with all this uh, conflict. He said, it is easy to understand, etc. Um, the widespread desire that all nations in view of this universal kinship should daily find a closer union with one another and then straight away in paragraph two he goes on to and makes more sense after you've just told me what you've told me but you're wrong and this is why you're wrong and yes. so if you're ready let's move on to paragraph two
1: mm-hmm. yes he's he's as i said bursting their bubble the do-gooders and the you know the the dreamers uh, he's bursting their bubble
0: so, in paragraph two, he talks about interreligious meetings based on an erroneous view of religion. Now we've just talked a little bit about this erroneous view of religion, but um but a, a little bit more about these interreligious uh, meetings well, I think we should we
1: should read exactly what he says because it's it sounds just like Assisi, and I just learned that we're supposed to get another assisi He says yes, me. for since they hold it for certain that men destitute of all religious sense, are very rarely to be found. They seem to have founded on that belief a hope that the nations, although they differ among themselves in certain religious matters, will, without much difficulty, come to agree as brethren in professing certain doctrines, which form, as it were, a common basis of the spiritual life. See, so lowest common denominator, religion. For which reason conventions, meetings, and addresses are frequently arranged by these persons at which a large number of listeners are present and at which all without distinction are invited to join in the discussion, both infidels of every kind and Christians, even those who have unhappily fallen away from Christ or who with obstinacy and pertinacity deny his divine nature and mission. Now, you could not get a better definition of Assisi or of other ecumenical meetings that have taken place for the past 50 years under Vatican II's flag.
0: Yeah, I'll just say it's <laughs> funny. I scribbled Assisi in the column of my show notes when I was reading it. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the definition of Assisi.
1: Now, listen to the next sentence. Certainly such attempts can no wise be approved by Catholics, founded as they are on that false opinion which considers all religions to be more or less good and praiseworthy, since they all in different ways manifest and signify that sense which is inborn in us all and by which we are led to God and to the obedient acknowledgement of his rule. Now that's a direct attack on modernism, just a little review of modernism. Modernism says we all have an interior religious sense, we all have an experience of God, and religions differ only because people have different religious experiences based upon their various cultures and historical backgrounds. And... Therefore, all religions are fundamentally the same because they proceed from the same religious experience and consequently their dogmas are merely symbols of what they believe uh, as a result of these historical circumstances and cultural circumstances and so forth and whatnot, and therefore could be watered down and and in some way moderated so that we could come up with formulas that pleased everybody. That's modernism, you see. Catholicism is that God has revealed himself. The sources of revelation are sacred scripture and tradition. They are the property of the Roman Catholic Church, and the authority of the Catholic Church takes these sources of revelation and proposes from these sources of revelation something called dogmas, and it proposes these dogmas with infallible authority so that the dogmas truly reflect the reality that is contained in Revelation. And we must believe these dogmas with the assent of faith and die for these dogmas if necessary rather than ever deny them because we adhere to them with the ascent of faith. Now you can see that from those two <laughs> definitions that I've just given, one of the modernist view of dogma and the other the catholic view of dogma that these are two things that are so radically opposed that they could never get along no catholic could ever participate in in some ecumenical service It's just not possible he would have to abandon his catholic religion in order to do so because he would have to say the dogmas that i have really are are not reflections of God's nature or or morality or anything else, but are in fact something that proceed from me and may change as I change and may change as humanity changes because they are in some way affected by the historical context in which I live. So it just ruins dogma dogma by its very nature is dogmatic <laughs> that is that it, it is certain absolutely certain and fixed and so it, it it destroys the very word dogma it's it's no longer there now listen to what he says about this not only are those who hold this opinion in error and deceived but also in distorting the idea of true religion They reject it, and little by little turn aside to naturalism and atheism, Bergoglio called your office, as it is called, from which it clearly follows that one who supports those who hold these theories and attempt to realize them is altogether abandoning the divinely revealed religion. That is very strong. That's stronger than anything that St. Pius X said. That involvement in the ecumenical movement is to abandon the religion revealed by God. Apostasy. It is the equivalent of apostasy. It's a devastating condemnation. So the Catholic Church could not be more opposed to it, according to this. I mean, it means that you destroy the whole religion.
0: What else do you say? What, what, is there anything to add to that? <laughs> when he wrote the first of those two sentences, he must have had Pashendi in mind. He must have been thinking about Pashendi when he wrote about turning towards naturalism and atheism.
1: Oh, of course he did. Uh, he was, don't forget, a uh, a priest uh, in Milan, and uh, he was the head of the um, Biblioteca Ambrosiana, the, the Ambrosian Library in Milan, so he was very active during the modernist crisis and, and knew modernists, uh, you know, who they were and, and so forth. I mean, he had a very clear vision of what modernism is and was. Uh, he was a very intelligent man, Pius XI, extremely intelligent. He knew exactly what he was talking about and that this was a product of modernism. Yeah, he, he, he went straight for the juggler, as we say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Good>.
1: <laughs> yes, no, if we did not have this document, it would have been much more difficult to point out the errors of, of Vatican II. I mean, certainly they are errors, but this document is so anti Vatican II, I'm actually surprised that they put it up on the Vatican website. Uh, they're sort of obliged to, uh, I mean, but I mean, it just condemns everything that they're doing. Uh, however, you know we know that modernists get rid of these condemnations by simply saying, "Well, that was 1928; it's almost 100 years ago." So the you know we it, there's a context, and therefore you know it was true in the context, but now we no longer have that context, so it's no longer true. That's the way they deal with everything, all of the condemnations from the past, is that it's all uh, softened by the historical context in which it took place. And Pius the eleventh, we know, had a hot temper, so he probably had a bad day when he wrote this. And uh, you know, we just understand a little bit better now. That's the way they dismiss all of it. It's true. It's true. That's the way they do it. It makes them look a lot
0: more. You know, they look at this. They've written a hundred years ago, back in the dark ages. Aren't we a lot more enlightened and progressive now that we've got uh, the recyclical and things like that? That's that's what we worry about now.
1: Yes. No, it, it, the, the modernist religion is a religion of evolution. It never stops evolving. So that's something that the Novus Ordo conservatives have to understand. That whatever they have today, whatever little you know, crumbs come from the table today, may not be there tomorrow because they are in constant evolution. They have to understand that.
0: So he's he's gone through and he's said, um, forget about forget about the idea of this being a heresy. This is apostasy. Uh, He doesn't. He doesn't mince his words. And in the next paragraph, he goes on to talk about this desire for unity being cloaked by. He says, "Cloaked by most grave error."
1: Yes. Well, in the first part of, uh, or in paragraph um, four, I think. All right. Uh, And uh, he he shows how they try to package this evil doctrine in all sorts of pretty words. Uh, shouldn't humanity get together? Uh, he, he, they quote, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he says, All Christians, they add, should be as one, for then they would be much more powerful in driving out the pest of irreligion. That's Vatican II which, like a serpent, daily creeps further and becomes more widely spread and prepares to rob the gospel of its strength. He, he's, he's quoting them. Uh, he's paraphrasing them. And he says, These things and others, that class of men who are known as pan-Christians, we would say ecumenists, continually repeat and amplify. And these men, so far from being quite few and scattered have increased to the dimensions of an entire class and have grouped themselves into widely spread societies, most of which are directed by non-Catholics, although they are imbued with varying doctrines concerning the things of faith. All right, now, at the end of the paragraph, what does he say? But in reality, beneath these enticing words and blandishments lies hid a most grave error by which the foundations of the Catholic faith are completely destroyed. So again, he drops an atomic bomb on ecumenism. I mean, he doesn't say, you know, they're they're on the wrong path, or they really shouldn't be doing this, or this is very dangerous. He says the foundations of the Catholic faith are completely destroyed by this system. Very, very important words. And we know that when ecumenism was injected into Catholic institutions, it destroyed them. We are living the destruction today. It has destroyed them. The the beautiful edifice that that came to us from 2,000 years of preservation of the true faith has now been practically wiped out. (laughs) In the sense that, you know, in this sense that There's very few Catholics left. There's very few left that can say, I identify or can be identified with the Catholicism of pre-Vatican II. There's a handful left. And most have gone over to this new system which ruins the foundations of the Catholic faith. And we have seen this system do precisely that, ruin our Catholic institutions that before the Council were Were places of catholic piety and catholic faith catholic discipline now they have turned into just just houses of heresy
0: i was sent a link today by by a friend of a nun in north america who spends her time she's in her i think she's in her 70s she's way past retirement i think she's in her 70s and she spends her time doing whatever way
1: you say i'm 66.
0: (laughs) Uh, she no, she, she's a lot older than you, my lord. <laughs> and i she's and just I'll a young thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll edit that out. Um, she spends most of her time doing triathlon. That's uh, that's swimming, cycling, and running. She does it competitively, and she does it over crazy distances. Um, you know, sort of half she'll swim a ridiculous distance, and then. Bike a ridiculous distance, and then she'll run a half marathon, thirteen miles at the end of it. You know, she's a nun, and yes, she yes. is. She's at the stage in her life when she should be preparing for a holy death, and she's spending most of her time doing triathlon. And what is it if this? You know, if this is not the result of of injecting this this idea into the Catholic Church and and destroying the faith, you know, what else could have done it? it it's naturalism. See,
1: God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be healthy. And and so therefore, it, you know, that, this is why I do this. That's naturalism. It is promoted every single day by Bergoglio. This year, he, uh, for the things that we are supposed to pray for, according to Bergoglio, every month he announces something new. There has not been a single intention that has been sacred or supernatural. In July, I think it was that we have to have respect for the primitive cultures, you know, like the Aztecs who used to cut out people's hearts and, and the blood would flow down all of the steps of those famous pyramids in Mexico City. So we are supposed to have respect for all of that. The, the, and, you know, all of those people would say, oh, you know, the Spanish were terrible for coming in and disturbing those primitive cultures. Uh, primitive cultures are, uh, are the work of the devil because uh, original sin has so corrupted those people who are who are cut off even from natural good that managed to survive in civilizations that 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 they they just multiplied into you know the effects multiplied and multiplied for many many centuries into making people into savages essentially but we're supposed to have respect for that and of course not disturb them by christianity remember he said that uh, proselytism, that is the idea of going and converting people, is solemn nonsense. You know, that, that, don't forget that. So the reason she's doing that is because she's a naturalist. I would say probably she has given up the Catholic faith and has transformed her, quote-unquote, Catholic faith into the idea of keeping herself healthy. Uh, God wants her to be healthy. Uh, God wants her to be happy. And, and that's what she's trying to do. To fulfil herself.
0: It's almost like well, oh I don't know what is it that I think that uh, actually I think that Donald Trump used to go to a, a kind of church where they treat they preach uh, what is it that we- wealth gospel or something like that? Uh, oh yes, the uh,
1: prosperity gospel. That's
0: what it's called. That's a, So it's like that, but it's it's like fitness gospel.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. It, it is. It's uh, God wants you to be happy, and it's all this world stuff. It's all naturalism. And Christianity is, is hooked up to those horses. You know, it, it's, it, it's like a, a carriage that is hooked up to the, to the naturalistic train. That, that's Gaudium et Spes, helping the world, the, the Catholic Church, at the service of the world in, in putting humanity together on a naturalistic basis. That's uh, Paul VI going to the United Nations and saying, you are the last hope of the world. Could you imagine saying that to the United Nations, you know, which is basically a leech? And a blood-sucking leech uh, parked on Manhattan Island, who really do nothing and haven't stopped a single war in their whole period of existence. Uh, and as I have said in other places, uh, you know their, their biggest contribution is to have a diplomatic license plates so that it can park anywhere they want in New York City. But you know they all it's just one big blood, blood-sucking leech, and most of the money is given to it by the United States. Uh, and it was founded by Mrs. Roosevelt and Alger Hiss, who were two communists. So th- he goes to, to them and says, you know, you're the last hope of the world. Uh, th- that's to say that essentially what, what Wilson said, that Christianity has failed to put humanity together. Now we're putting our hope in this in this new humanity. Because what uh, he's saying so, is,
0: the Catholic Church has got nothing to say to you. We've got no message for you at all. Nothing that's ever come out of the Catholic Church has ever done any good, and you're the last tape because we've completely messed it all up.
1: Yes, that's essentially the message. Bergoglio just said to the youth in Poland, believe in a new humanity. See, it's the civilization of love. It's all naturalistic. And that's what comes through in the new mass, when people go to the new mass, that Humanism and naturalism, the dialoguing with the people, and the comportment of the priest, who's, uh, as we would say, one of the guys, uh, you know, somebody who's who's down with you and uh, has no priestly dignity. He's just uh, one of the guys, and you know, all of that is part of the naturalism. Whereas the the priest in the traditional faith was somebody who was set apart and uh, who conducted himself uh, in a way that manifested his, his uh, power to uh, confect the Holy Eucharist. Uh, he was aware of his sacred character, and people were aware of it. It was a whole different religion, but now you know, everybody's slumming and relaxed, so to speak. And that's true.
0: Well, new humanity sounds a bit like sort of transhumanism where people get themselves, you know, they think they're going to get downloaded onto a hard drive and live in cyberspace forever. But the idea of B- <laughs> B- B- living in cyberspace forever is pretty hard. No, I think right?
1: cyberspace <laughs> would probably be a good place for him. You know? Although, as we always say, he has done us more good than anybody else. Uh, people just have abandoned, in many cases, any attempt to see him as a Roman Catholic. Uh, they've just abandoned it, you know,
0: it's just not possible. The best recruiting sergeant we've got. Yes. Moving back to the encyclical and moving on to paragraph 5 now. In paragraph 5, uh, the Pope then goes to his bishops and and, and wants to uh, encourage his bishops to uh, to work with him.
1: Uh, yes, he, he is uh, calling upon them to to repress this evil thing and uh, that uh, this is something that that should not happen. Uh, he he wants to nip it in the bud. It was those Malene conferences of Cardinal Mercier who, who that, that that sort of tipped it off. And also there was this movement to at, in the nineteen twenties on the part of Jews to remove the word perfidis in in the Latin moremus pro perfidis Judaeis. Let us. Uh, pray for the unfaithful Jews, because that comes over into English as unfaithful, not as perfidious, because perfidious means something different from what perfidus means in Latin. Uh, But it's often translated, the perfidious Jews, and and they said, you know, we we should take it out. And uh, again, the Holy See said, no, absolutely not, we're not taking it out. There was another attempt to do that under Pius XII, and he refused to do that. So there was this, uh, uh, again, uh, something in the air of, uh, watering down religion and that adhering to dogma is something that causes wars and we should put humanity together by forgetting about our dogmas and forgetting about our differences. Uh, if you recall, uh, in one of the shows I did, I don't know if it was with you, but uh, that was the whole purpose in the 19th century of Alliance Israelite that was founded in 1848 to modernize all religions so that they would break down their dogmas, it has its roots in the nineteenth century, and so he he is nipping it in the bud he 's saying you know if you think that we 're going to participate in, in this sort of the Protestant nonsense of trying to put everybody together uh, you, you're you 're wrong uh, and uh, it's a, for that reason it 's a very important document.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would like to quote directly from paragraph five, my Lord, or should we move on to paragraph six?
1: Well, let's see. Uh, We are about to set forth and from which Catholics will learn how they are to think and act when there is question of those undertakings which have for their end the union in one body whatsoever be the manner of all who call themselves Christians. So uh, he's saying this is how Catholics should act. And so we move on to number six. I think we should read this because it's important. He says, We were created by God, the creator of the universe, in order that we might know him and serve him. Very important point. See, God does not exist for us. It's the idea that God wants me to be happy, therefore I jog on Sunday morning. That's all false and reversed. We exist for him. Then he says, Our author, therefore, has a perfect right to our service. Correct. God might indeed have prescribed for man's government only the natural law, which in his creation he imprinted on his soul, and have regulated the progress of that same law by his ordinary providence. So he's saying God could have chosen never to reveal himself, but to merely have man act according to the natural law. But, he says, he preferred rather to impose precepts which we were to obey, and in the course of time... Namely, from the beginnings of the human race until the coming and preaching of Jesus Christ, he himself taught man the duties which a rational creature owes to its creator. God, and this is a quote from Hebrews, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, last of all, in these days hath spoken to us by his son. So his point here is that God has revealed a religion to us. And he quotes sacred scripture to support that. Then he says, listen carefully, from which it follows that there can be no true religion other than that which is founded on the revealed word of God, which revelation begun from the beginning and continued under the old law, Christ Jesus himself under the new law perfected. So that is a very important point: that there is only one true religion of God, and the the logical consequence of that is that all religions which are not the one true religion of God are false. They're phony, all right. They're like Monopoly money, you know. It's 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 just you know the value of money that you would have in a in a board game. Uh, they're nothing, they're zero. If they do not have a license from God to exist, then they're, they're, they're just nothing. They're just groups of human beings who think that they're churches, who dress up in vestments or in various other ways and think that they are, they are speaking for God. In fact, they're not. They're nobody. They're zero. And that's a very important point. That and if you don't have that connection to our Lord Jesus Christ, you're a zero. That means, you know, your religion has no value because you're not attached to Christ. Then he says a little later on, Christ our Lord instituted his church as a perfect society, external of its nature and perceptible to the senses which should carry on in the future the work of the salvation of the human race under the leadership of one head with an authority teaching by word of mouth and by the ministry of the sacraments, the founts of heavenly grace, for which reason he attested by comparison the similarity of the church to a kingdom, to a house, to a sheepfold, and to a flock, all right, so he's saying that this is not some invisible union, and, you know, general communion of people who believe in Christ, but this is an institution, a visible institution that he founded, all right, so he he destroys the very foundations of ecumenism, and all of this, he says, this church, after being so wonderfully instituted, could not on the removal by death of its founder and of the apostles who were the pioneers in propagating it be entirely extinguished and cease to be. For to it was given the commandment to lead all men without distinction of time or place to eternal salvation. And then he quotes the solemn mission that our Lord gave to the apostles, going therefore, teach ye all nations, And he continues, in the continual carrying out of this task, will any element of strength and efficiency be wanting to the church when Christ himself is perpetually present to it according to his solemn promise? Behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. Then he says this very important thing. It follows then that the church of Christ not only exists today, and always, but is also exactly the same as it was in the in the time of the apostles, unless we were to say, which God forbid, either that Christ our Lord could not affect his purpose, or that he erred when he asserted that the gates of hell should never prevail against it. Very important point, because he says that the sameness of the Catholic Church all throughout the ages, is so intrinsic to its nature as the Church of Christ that if it were not the same, you would have to conclude that Christ was unable to protect it and was unable to be with it as he promised or that he was wrong in saying that the gates of hell would never prevail against it. Those are very, very strong statements. I mean, he is placing the the truth and, and unity and sameness of the Catholic Church, he is pitting it against the, the denial of the faith itself. I mean, he's saying that if you do not assert these things, you have to deny that Christ was telling us the truth. I mean, that's extremely strong. I mean, he's, he's, that's why he says it, it ruins, ecumenism ruins the, the, the very foundations of the Catholic faith. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, very important document.
0: We would like to remind you that you are listening to Popes Against the Modern Errors, Mortalium Animus, on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm joined by His Lordship, Bishop Sanborn, of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing Pope Pius XI's encyclical on religious unity. We want to remind you that this Pubs Against the Modern Era show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. Okay, my lord, so having pointed out these truths about the, the church, um, and that ecumenism would mean either that Christ... Could not affect his purpose, or that he erred when he said the gaze of uh, hell would not prevail against the church. Pope Pius VII then goes on to discuss the church as being a perfect society in paragraph seven.
1: Yes, he he uh, blasts the idea that is is constantly repeated by modernists that the Church of Christ is not one because it is broken up into Protestantism and. Orthodoxy or a schism of the Orientals, that the Catholic Church lacks unity, or the Church of Christ, I should say, lacks unity because uh, of these divisions. It's typically modernist, John Paul Tuch said it, all, all of those modernists repeated that. So, uh, so he, he gives that, the opinion. And he says, they consider that this unity may indeed be desired, and that it may even be one day attained the instrumentality of wills directed to a common end you know vatican II, but that meanwhile it can only be regarded as a mere ideal now listen they add that the church in itself or of its nature is divided into sections that is to say that it is made up of several churches or distinct communities this is exactly ratzinger in his exactly the same. it's exactly it's a, Ratzinger.
0: It's a word for word <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yes, which still remains separate, and although having certain articles of doctrine in common, nevertheless dis- disagree concerning the remainder, that all these enjoy the same rights, and that the church was one and unique from at the most the apostolic age until the first ecumenical councils. Controversies, therefore, they say, and long standing differences of opinion, which keep asunder till the present day the members of the Christian family, must be entirely put aside, and from the remaining doctrines a common form of faith drawn up and proposed for belief, and in the profession of which all may not only know but feel that they are brothers. You couldn't get a a better definition of Vatican II and the decree on ecumenism and everything that has happened since Vatican II.
0: It's like prophecy. There
1: it is. (laughs) So, you know, this, this just screams condemnation of Vatican II. So then he goes on later. They soon, however, go on to say that the Church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, has also erred and corrupted the original religion by adding and proposing for belief certain doctrines which are not only alien to the Gospel, but even repugnant to it. That's exactly what the modernists say, is that, that the, the Catholic Church was too insistent on dogma. Uh, we just saw Ergolio say that Luther was not wrong on justification, even mm-hmm. though the Council of Trent condemned Luther solemnly on justification. Luther was not wrong on justification. Uh, He praised the joint declaration uh, with the Lutherans uh, that happened under Ratzinger, I think, in 1999. And that's going to be the instrument of some sort of ecumenical nonsense with the Lutherans, I think, in 2017. Pius XI continues, among the chief of these, they number that which concerns the primacy of jurisdiction which was granted to peter and to his successors in the See of rome so you remember that bergoglio came out on the balcony and called himself the bishop of rome which is what the anglicans call him uh, and it's it's not to say that that's wrong but it is to say that he understands exactly what the modernists say and he agrees with it that the primacy of jurisdiction of the Pope over all the churches is something that is a stumbling block to this unity, and therefore the papacy has to be dragged across the screen, the, the screen into the trash. the The papacy has to be transformed into something like like the British monarch, you know, as an overseer that you know might save uh, a bad situation if something happens, or might intervene in in a. You know, in a diocese here or there, it's it's sort of a an ins- a political insurance policy, I think, for the the British. You know, the I mean, you would know better than I, but you know, her, her role in 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 lawmaking is rather limited, uh, and uh, and that's what the the Pope is supposed to be in this system is is a, an overseer. That's exactly what the Febronian said in the 18th century that he would have the right of inspection and that he would intervene in a diocese if something went wrong, but basically he's going to stay in Rome and, you know, have court in Rome. Uh, And, uh, you know, know, something like the British monarchy.
0: If Begalia had come out and said, I am the sovereign pontiff, I am the vicar of Christ on earth to whom all must recognize and submit in matters of faith, doctrine and morals, uh, you, you can't imagine him saying anything like that, but none of those statements would be false.
1: Correct, Un- under pain of of going to hell. Add that.
0: <laughs> if he was a true pope, they wouldn't be false. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yes, I don't think there would be. It would have been too many "Viva il Papa"s in the in the crowd if he had said something like that.
0: I think not.
1: <laughs> they would have booed him. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> No, he is the man of the age. Uh, and that's why they like him so much. And, and then he says, uh, Pius 11 says something I, I find amusing here. He says, "...but all the same, although many non-Catholics may be found who loudly preach paternal communion in Christ Jesus, yet you will find none at all to whom it ever occurs to submit to and obey the vicar of Jesus Christ, either in his capacity as a teacher or as a governor." You know, why don't they just become Catholic? Yeah, I'm <laughs> that'd be a wonderful idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that's the way you achieve Christian unity, and that has been always the attitude of the Catholic Church. And that's, as I said in another show, excuse me if I'm repeating myself, the unity of the Catholic Church is is the way in which to reestablish, a, you know, a unity of Christians and that the Catholic Church succeeded many times in getting alienated Christians, either schismatics or heretics, to come back to the Catholic Church. Uh, at least for a time, they succeeded at Lyon uh, in 1274, they succeeded at Florence in the, in the 1400s, and there were many, many other repeated attempts to bring back people who had strayed from the fold, but with the idea that they are returning to the true Church of Christ that recognizes the Pope as the true Vicar of Christ. And it was not with any other motive or idea or any kind of deal or anything like that, they had to accept the the Pope as the Vicar of Christ and to accept the Catholic hierarchy. And that was very successful.
0: And they all felt so much better for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they felt yes. so much better for becoming Catholics again. So for you know, for for Nova Sordi people listening to this show, and you know, we know you do, and we we're very happy that you do. But just just become sort of a cantist. you feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: yes, it does lift that 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 burden of trying to make Bergoglio into a Catholic.
0: All of that angst just goes. You feel so much better. You think, oh, I'm a Catholic again. <laughs>
1: Yes, it's true. As Father Desposito says, to be a state of a Kansas is, is simply to be a Catholic in a time when there's no Pope. That's all it means.
0: I said that to a Recognize and Resist friend uh, last weekend. She was, uh, she was a bit stunned, but she didn't have an answer for it. She just couldn't say anything. Oh. It's a, just huh? a Catholic <laughs> when there is no Pope. And, uh, so yeah, thanks, thanks to Father Disposito for that.
1: Yeah, that was a good one.
0: <laughs> absolutely correct. Is that paragraph 7 finished, my lord, or is there anything else before we move on to paragraph 8?
1: I, I think we're done with, with number 7, yes. Okay. In
0: paragraph
1: 8... Well, he starts out with a bang. I mean, this is a broadside. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's go. He says, This being so, it is clear that the apostolic see cannot on any terms take part in their assemblies, nor is it any way lawful for Catholics either to support or to work for such enterprises, for if they do so, they will be giving countenance to a false Christianity quite alien to the one Church of Christ. Again, a devastating blow. This is not, uh, as I said, uh, Catholics really shouldn't do this, and it's dangerous, and we recommend against it. This is a devastating blow. This makes it very grave and uh, uh, something contrary to faith. So, then, he says a little later, if our Redeemer plainly said that his gospel was to continue not only during the times of the apostles, but also till future ages, is it possible that the object of faith should in the process of time become so obscure and uncertain that it would be necessary today to tolerate opinions which are even incompatible one with another. So again, he's saying that the Catholic Church must remain the same as Christ founded it, and it does, it does not undergo decay or, or you know, change or, or wear, we might say. Uh, but uh, then he adds, if this were true, we should have to confess that the coming of the Holy Ghost on the Apostles and the perpetual indwelling of the same spirit in the church and the very preaching of Jesus Christ have, several centuries ago, lost all their efficacy and use to affirm which would be blasphemy. Again, another withering broadside against this that makes it equivalent to blasphemy. Because he he, you know, he talks about how they, they say, well, you know, the doctrines were obscured and, the, you know, the, essentially that the, the, the church decayed, uh, you know, from what it was originally. And that's why we have all of these divisions. And he's saying, absolutely not. The church is not subject to decay. It is not subject to change. And to affirm this would be blasphemy.
0: <laughs> I
1: don't know what else to say. <laughs> I mean, what's left? It's 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 just uh, rubble left. That's all. <laughs> yes, he continues. But the only begotten Son of God, when he commanded his representatives to teach all nations, obliged all men to give credence to whatever was made known to them by witnesses preordained by God, and also confirmed his command with this sanction he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Then he adds, these two commands of Christ, which must be fulfilled, the one namely to teach and the other to believe, cannot even be understood unless the church proposes a complete and easily understood teaching and is immune when it thus teaches from all danger of erring. so christ could not condemn us for not believing if his church could err that's what he's saying you see then we would not be responsible if we could say well the church might be wrong and it does not have the assistance of christ when it teaches and it does not teach in his name well then we how could we be condemned See, so that, that solemn mission to the apostles is extremely strong. I'll, I will be with you all days until the consummation of the world. And then those who do not believe shall be condemned, well, well, because precisely the church will show itself as the one true church of Christ through miracles, through prophecies, and also through its own life. In other words, its own consistency, its own sameness. And that's really what draws people first to the Catholic Church more than a question of miracles and prophecies is that it is a solid rock that never changes and they understand that that is a divine attribute because God never changes. Everybody knows that down deep in his heart. God never changes and therefore his religion must never change. That's what draws people to the Catholic Church. And that's why people are not drawn to the Catholic Church. In fact, they are drawn into heresy today because that very notion has been abandoned by Vatican II. That it's not a rock, but it's mush. It's mush that changes from minute to minute. And and it, it has no appeal to the world. That's why it's it's losing people every day.
0: And he finishes off the paragraph by talking about... People often give us an excuse for the fact that, oh, it's too, this is just too difficult. We can't possibly understand it. What what kind of reaction uh, would you give to that, my lord? You uh, said so there, there are those that give excuses that this is just too lengthy and I can't possibly understand this and the religion's too hard and all the rest of it
1: it's nonsense the the it's true that the catholic church contains many mysteries uh, revelation all of revelation is mysterious in the sense that we cannot completely understand it but we can understand some some aspects of it and it, this is just another attempt to destroy the notion of dogma that dogma is is meaningless to the modern world. The modern world, uh, you know, sees dogma as a... Uh, I remember in the, in the sort of seminary, they said, like a stone coming down from heaven and hitting your head. See, that, that this rock of dogma uh, is meaningless to the modern world because the modern world wants uh, everything to be conformed to it. You know, man makes his own reality. And there, there are no steadfast rules of belief or steadfast rules of morality, and we're seeing that gradually mature in, in these times when things that were considered immoral by everybody are now extolled as a something you should be proud of mm-hmm. uh, because of that principle that what what is you know good for you is is fine if you think it's good that's fine. That's all comes from that 18th century subjectivistic thinking, and it it it, it is absolutely opposed to the Catholic dogma. It is not opposed to the Novus Ordo, and that's why the Novus Ordo is so soft on all of those things. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, my lord, I think we're going to cut this episode short at the end of paragraph eight. This is a a short encyclical for listeners, but it's absolutely packed with as you put it broadside after broadside um so something like trafalgar <laughs> don't tell the don't tell the french um, yes. <laughs> don't mention that to your french seminarian. and yes. Um, yes it's a very easy and accessible and typical for people to read so recommend they do go and read it but rather than go through it all in one big long show i'd rather split it up over two so that people really get the chance to save a, a bit of a longer time. Is there anything else you'd like to address to the listeners halfway through this encyclical before we end this show?
1: Just simply what I said at the beginning, that this is the most anti-Vatican II document that pre-exists Vatican II, uh, uh, because ecumenism was the, the purpose of Vatican II. Uh, the, John Twenty Third said the purpose of the Council is to repeat the old dogmas in new ways and those new ways turned out to be ways in which uh, the, the old dogmas were obscured and ways in which they, they could be ambiguously understood by Protestants uh, in, a, in, in a different sense than what the Catholic Church always taught and we see that this has again gradually matured so that, that Bergoglio can get up and say that Luther was not wrong on justification and that there's not a single voice raised that that is heresy. Not a single voice. People have been so de-dogmatized by the ecumenical movement that nobody cares that he said that. That is a blatant and overt heresy to say that. And nobody cares. That fact shows that the 50 years of ecumenism has destroyed the very foundations of the Catholic Church exactly what Pius XI said it would do. And so I think they should see this as a landmark document uh, that that condemns everything that Vatican II is and also justifies everything that the State of Acanthus are saying, namely that the new religion of Vatican II is a false religion based on principles which destroy the Roman Catholic faith. And therefore, the hierarchy that proposes this new religion must be denounced and unmasked as a false hierarchy and as intruders and, and as as wolves in the clothing of shepherds. Otherwise, if you give them the, the, the titles that they claim, the Catholic hierarchy, you essentially hand to, to this very doctrine that is condemned by Pius XI, as undermining the very foundations of Roman Catholicism, you are putting on this evil doctrine, the mantle of the true faith.
0: As we close out this episode, once again, my Lord, I'd like to thank you for your time in being with us again here today. Thank you very much, and may God bless you. Thank you. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, please contact us at modernerrors at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions and comments to his Lordship. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even simply an ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you.